you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Titus. Titus, and our text will be the book of Titus. We'll think about the whole thing. I had hopes of giving a more sort of formal report of some kind about the trip to the Philippines. Um, but that jet lag, jet lag thing is is real. Um, I'm sure you guys are experiencing it. I'm waking up at 3 o'clock, 3.30, um, and uh, we're slowly adjusting to that. So, And I've still got some sort of a head cold that's driving me crazy. But So hopefully I'll have some more for us. Probably at, uh, at next week's meeting, uh, I want to think through uh, what we did, what we learned about this process of ministering to the pastors and what it looks like for the future. Uh, they do want us to come back. Uh, they enjoy the, the teaching and the training and love the idea of us returning on a continual basis. And I think uh, it would be great to do that. I think it will tie in well with our meeting because I need to check out the expenses. How much did this cost us? If we want to go a couple times a year, what will that look like? And so you can pray for me as I process through some of that. Um, but uh, things went well. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about Filipino culture. I learned a lot about the traffic everyone's told me about. Uh, I learned a lot about um, about the churches there. It's so encouraging to open up the bulletin and, and to see uh, that we're praying for Benarzong Baptist Church and Pastor Jr. And I've been there and I met Pastor Jr. and I stood in that church and uh, it was just neat and was able to tell them all, we pray for you guys. We've prayed for you for years. I've prayed for you guys for years, and I had no idea what this church looked like, and I had no idea who you were. Um, and so we're building these relationships, and it was extremely encouraging. Um, but uh, I hope to have a more formal uh, report at some point. But for now, let's look at the book of Titus. So the book of Titus, and again, we will consider the whole book this morning. Uh, in the movie Back to the Future, which hopefully you've seen, because everyone should, uh, Marty McFly finds himself transported back in time uh, to 1955. And his first order of business is to find his friend, the inventor of the time machine, Dr. Emmett L. Brown, and figure out how to get himself back to the future, hence the name of the movie. But the situation is rough, because if you remember, the electrical force that's needed to power the DeLorean uh, is, which is the, the time machine, is 1.21 gigawatts, which is roughly equivalent to the power of a bolt of lightning. Um, so they are faced with impossible odds, and the movie shows how Marty and Doc find a way to get back to 1985 without totally disrupting the space-time continuum, continuum, and they end up doing it by harnessing the power of an actual bolt of lightning. It's an amazing thing. So they, even more impossible, though, than this, even more impossible than Marty McFly getting back to the future through the power of a bolt of lightning is the one that we find ourselves in as sinners who are born into a fallen world and the call to not only be made right with God, but to walk before him in holiness and good works. How can we do this? How can we be made right with God and how can we walk rightly with God? We're going to need some sort of power. We're going to need more than 1.21 gigawatts. We're going to need more than a, a bolt of lightning. We, we're going to need the, the power of God through the gospel. 
the book of Titus, in it, Paul writes to his friend, as, as Trevor so eloquently said, his friend and his fellow pastor, who is facing impossible odds. He's, he's in this newly formed church, and, and he's trying to figure out how things are going to work, how to pastor, how to help this church. And Paul writes to Titus and encourages him with this truth. And I think this is the big idea for the whole book of Titus, um, and it will be our big idea this morning. So I apologize if it's a little long. But it's this, the gospel, the gospel, the good news is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. The gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. As followers of Christ in this world, we face impossible odds. If we face them within ourselves, we face them within our churches, we face them within this world. Impossible odds. But God's word here in Titus calls us to trust in the power of the gospel, no matter how impossible the odds seem. We may at times feel helpless about ourselves or about those that we know who are in rebellion to God. We feel that nothing can change us that nothing could ever change them. Or we might be tempted to try things other than the gospel to see change happen. We, we look outside of the power of Christ. We look outside of the power of Christ working through his church. But the book of Titus encourages us again that the gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. Now I want to read the introduction to the letter and then consider five points to help us think about the book as a whole and about this truth that we're talking about. So my hope is to consider the book of Titus as a whole this week. We'll just look at the whole thing in, in, in a broad picture, um, and then we'll tackle the three chapters of the book over the following three weeks. So chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, over the next three weeks. So today is sort of this flyover, um, and then we'll drill down into the chapters over the, the coming weeks. Uh, so this morning, the five elements, five principles of this short letter, and you don't have to write these down. I'll, I'll make sure they're clear, but they're just going to be the setting, the situation, the goal, the plan, and the power. So real simple, uh, the setting, the situation, the goal, the plan, and the power. We got to hear chapter two read uh, to us earlier uh, a few moments ago. So let's look at the introduction here. I want to read just Titus chapter one. Verses 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's the introduction. That's how the letter begins. Um, and it gives us the setting. So let's start. We'll just think about the setting of this letter and of the place where Titus is at. Paul is obviously the writer, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to Titus, 
who is the pastor of a church, and we find out where he is there in verse 5, where Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Titus is called uh, Paul's true child in a common faith. What he means by true child, we can't be totally sure. I'm not sure if uh, Titus came to faith through the ministry of Paul. That's a possibility. I think certainly that, that Titus grew in his faith and grew in his understanding of being a pastor under the ministry of Paul. He's been appointed by Paul. Uh, verse 5 there, this is why I left you in Crete. So Paul is the church planter. Paul goes and, and preaches the gospel. He's an evangelist of sorts, and he establishes churches, but he doesn't stay and become the pastor of those churches. Rather, he finds people that he installs as the elders or the leaders within those churches, and that's what Titus is. So Paul, at some point, was in Crete um, or knew of this church in Crete, and he left Titus there to be the pastor. Now, where is Crete? I don't know if you know your geography. Uh, it's in the Mediterranean Sea, though. If you have maps in your Bible, it would be easy to find it. Um, it's there in the Mediterranean Sea, um, just a, a fairly small island uh, south of where many of Paul's missionary journeys happened. And you can see where Crete is at, uh, but it's, a, it's an island there. And so that's the setting. The setting is very simple. It's Paul writing a letter to his friend Titus. If I call him Timothy at some point, I, I kept doing that when I was going through things. So just I apologize. I'm talking about Titus. It's his, this is someone that Paul has discipled. He's left in this church, this sort of island church there in Crete, uh, and he is in charge of the church there. So you might think about his experience, what that would be like um, to be in this unique place as, as a pastor, maybe feeling a little bit alone, maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Um, but that's the setting. What's the situation? That's the second thing I want to look at. What's the situation? What's, what's going on in Crete? Um, Paul usually is writing for some sort of a purpose. He, he has uh, some sort of reason why he is going to write to specific people or to specific churches. And so we find that there's, there's something going on here. Uh, Paul seems to be writing to Titus in light of some challenging circumstances that are going on. Look at chapter 1, and I want to read verses 10 through 14, after he tells um, Timothy what kind of people the elders should be, he says this in verse 10 of chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What's the situation in, in Crete? It seems that Titus is there and he has two groups of people that he's going to need to deal with as the pastor of this church. One is Cretans and the other is the circumcision party. The Cretans. So let's think about Cretan culture as it's described here. He lives in Crete, and so he's surrounded by Cretans. And what do we know about Cretans? The description is there in verse 12. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, what's even more shocking than that, one of their own says that about them, is that Paul then in verse 13 says, that's true. <laughs> 
He doesn't say, oh, it's not that bad, Titus. No, he says, yeah, that's probably a good description of who the Cretans are. Uh, we went through this book in our seminar uh, there in, in uh, Isabella. And I asked at the seminar for people to complete the phrase of themselves, Filipinos are always what? And they said, someone shouted out, late. Filipinos are always late. <laughs> what would we say about our culture? What would we say about Americans? Americans are always, I don't know, or Louisvillians. Louisvillians are always something. And, and that's sort of what's going on here. This is what Cretans are always like. They're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Titus is now the pastor of a church on an island where the inhabitants are known as liars, beasts, and gluttons. So this could be kind of an uphill battle uh, for Titus. <laughs> you're thinking about uh, what you're going to do. And you can't uh, have different people in your church because... You're on Crete, and there's nowhere else to get people from. So the Cretans are going to be the people that fill your church. Just as a side note, I think it's interesting that Paul knows Cretan culture. He knows what Titus is, is up against. And it just made me pause and say, I, I wonder if I know my culture well enough to know what I'm up against. Do I know my city? Do I know my neighborhood? Do I know my country? Do we know what we're facing? Um, I don't know that... We should spend all our time invested in thinking about what the culture around us is like, but it's certainly good to have some sort of an idea about what the culture that we live in is like. Uh, Paul it, it knows the culture well enough to quote one of their own prophets, someone from Crete. He'd read a Cretan author and was able to tell people what they said about themselves. Do we understand our own culture? Do we understand uh, the city that we live in, the neighborhood that we live in? It could be good to, to pause every once in a while and to, to, to know the culture that we live in, to absorb ourselves here and to, to understand what we face because it has bearing on how Titus is going to be the pastor of this church because he is teaching and he is preaching to Cretans. What do they think like? How do they act? But not only is Titus facing Cretan culture, he's also facing this group called the Circumcision Party. They're mentioned there in verse 10. The circumcision party. Now, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the New Testament, that's going to sound like a really strange group. Who is this circumcision party? Who are these guys? We first meet them back in the book of Acts. And so we need to do a little bit of history for how the church was formed after uh, the ascent of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit and what was going on um, in the early church. We could even go all the way back to Genesis 17, um, where circumcision is instituted. This is a, an issue that, that sort of has um, a whole biblical theology that we need to understand what's going on with this circumcision party. What's going on is the gospel is beginning to spread, and as it does, a curious thing starts to happen. It's that not only the Jews, but the Gentiles also begin to receive and accept Jesus as their Messiah as their savior. In other words, the good news of Jesus is seen not only to be for those who are Jewish, but for all people who would come in faith uh, to repent of sin and to trust in the atoning death of Christ and the life-giving resurrection of Jesus. And this is a unique thing that's happening because it would seem that throughout history that God is working through his people, through the Jewish people, and the Messiah was for the Jews. And yet, in the book of Acts, things start to expand and, 
And Gentiles start coming to faith, and, and people aren't sure what to do. And this is hard for the early church to grasp. It's especially hard because if you do think about how far back this went, all the way back to their forefather Abraham, in Genesis 17, God establishes circumcision. He establishes them as the unique people of God, and it's gone all through their history. And now we've got these new people. We've got these Gentiles that aren't submitting to the law of Moses, and they are coming um, and wanting to be part of God's people. What are we going to do with that? How do we figure that out? How do we wrestle with it? We see one of the ways that God deals with it is with Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Acts 10 and 11, Peter has a vision. It's a vision of a whole bunch of animals being lowered down on a, on a sheet or in a net of sorts. And all these animals are there. They're clean and unclean animals. So animals that the Jewish people were allowed to eat and animals that the Jewish people were forbidden to eat by the law. And the Lord says to Peter in this vision, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. What does Peter say? No way, Lord. I'm not doing that. I've never had anything unclean touch my lips. And what's God's response? Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Vision happens twice. Then Peter wakes up and there's a guy named Cornelius at his house looking for him. A man who is not a Jew that wants to know about Jesus. Is the vision about clean and unclean food? Partly. But more importantly, it's about clean and unclean people. And God is saying to Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. Don't say that this person can't be a part of God's people because everyone can be a part of God's people now. This thing starts to catch on. Paul and Barnabas are appointed as missionaries, and they go around preaching the gospel. And what happens is they start going into the synagogue, and they preach to the Jews. And the Jews often reject what they have to say. But the Gentiles slowly start believing. And they start having these great revivals in all these cities, in Derby and Lystra, and all over the place where people are coming to faith in Christ. But they're mostly, and many times, Gentiles. Well, the Jewish people don't like this idea. And so they start following Paul from city to city and preaching against what he has to say, saying that people need to be circumcised. Everything comes to a head in Acts chapter 15, where everyone comes together in Antioch. And, and they come together in Antioch, and, and it says this at the beginning of Acts 15. Acts 15 is what we often call the Jerusalem uh, Council. I said Antioch. They, they, uh, this is a... Uh, in Jerusalem, it says in, in Acts 15, verse, verse 1, uh, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is the issue. Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? And there's this whole controversy going on. So they all gather together. Peter's there. Paul and Barnabas are there. James is there. And they have this big discussion. What are we going to do about this whole circumcision thing? Peter stands up and he says, listen, I get where you guys are coming from. But from what I can tell, I had this vision. And, and it's been made clear to me that the Holy Spirit is being given to the Gentiles too. And then he says this wonderful phrase in verse 10 of, of Acts 15. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. I love that because Peter says, listen, you guys are trying to tell them to keep the law. We haven't been able to keep the law. 
Why, why are we wanting them to do that? We are seeing something new, that people are saved by grace, by the grace of Jesus. In verses, verse 12, Paul and Barnabas start talking about how they saw all these signs and wonders and how the Gentiles are coming to faith. And then James stands up, who's sort of the, the head of the church, and he says, listen, here's the decision we're going to make on this. You don't have to be circumcised. We want people to do a few things. And they, they mention them there um, in verse 20. And most of that is, is sort of a public relations thing. Listen, we don't want to be associated with those that are offering, that are worshiping idols. But we also don't want to put a burden on people that's unnecessary. The gospel has gotten rid of this need to keep the law of Moses. So the, the solution is there. The issue is, is solved. And yet the church continues to struggle with this all through its history. Actually, in Galatians, Peter is still struggling with this. We find in, in Galatians, uh, in chapter 1, Paul is, is writing the book of, of Galatians. And he comes and it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, Antioch I opposed him to his face. Paul got in Peter's face. Imagine what it would be like to be there for that. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing who? The circumcision party. They keep showing up. And Peter reverts back and starts saying, well, maybe we do need to keep the law. And Paul gets in his face and says, this is wrong. This is what Paul actually says. I said to Cephas, before them all, confrontation, right in front of everyone, okay? Paul says to Peter before everyone, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's a great question, and I'm sure that Peter didn't have an answer, even though Peter always seemed to have an answer for everything. Um, but we see that this issue is going on, and, and the circumcision party has followed Paul all around, and these guys are so passionate that they've gone to Crete. They've gone to an island in the middle of the Mediterranean to make sure that people understand that they need to be circumcised if they're going to be followers of Jesus. And they're causing issues now in the church that Titus is seeking to establish. They're saying the gospel isn't enough. Faith alone won't work. It won't fully change a person. They have to keep the law, including especially this command of circumcision. So imagine this, this is the situation that Titus is in, in his church. The situation in Crete is that Titus is in the midst of a Cretan culture that lacks self-control. And he's also in the midst of a culture where there are false teachers saying that the only way to be made holy, the only way to be made God's people, is by adhering to the law. In some ways, there, there are two opposites that, that he has to stand in the middle of. He has Cretan culture that says, do whatever you want. And then he has the circumcision party that's saying, no, you have to keep the law or else you will not be sanctified. And this is what Titus has to deal with. He has not only these two opposing forces, but he has the, the circumcision party coming to the Cretan culture and saying, you need to conform to the law of God. What's that going to look like for a bunch of Cretans? How are they going to respond to that? And this is the situation that Titus is in. So we looked at the setting, and this is the situation. And all this comes up against uh, Paul's goal for the church in Crete, his plan to see it happen, and the source of the power that he calls Tim Titus to rely on. So we're going to think about these things. We're going to think about Paul's goal, his plan, 
and his and the power uh, to see these things accomplished. So we've looked at the setting and the situation. Now let's look at the goal. What is Paul's hope? What is Paul's goal for Crete and for the church that Titus is in charge of? It's interesting if you read through the whole book of, of Titus, and I want to encourage you to do that in the coming week. It's it's a short book, but we find this this phrase or this idea of good works shows up over. And over and over again. It actually starts right in the beginning in verse 1. At the end there, it talks about uh, the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, the idea of good works. We find at the end of, of chapter 1 in verse 16, talking about these false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul then talks about the older men and the older women, the young women and the young men, the bondservants. And he says then in verse 14 of chapter 2, talking about what Jesus has done, he gave himself, verse 14 of chapter 2, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Then later on in verse 8 of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And at the end, in verse 14, almost the last verse, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Good works, good works, good works. What is Paul's goal for the church? It's God's goal for all who name the name of Christ. If we are going to be a church, then we need to be marked by good works. The goal for Paul is this. Effective members of God's family are marked by lives of good works. Titus, you're in Cretan culture. You're fighting the circumcision party. And the goal out of all of this is to have effective members of God's family who are marked by lives of good works. Now, we don't want to confuse the root and the fruit, right? We're not saved by good works. That, that, that The root of our salvation is not good works. The root of our salvation is faith alone in Christ alone and what he has done. But those who are truly his children will produce good works. And that's what Paul wants to see happen in the church in Crete. These Cretans, they need to start doing good works. They need to be marked by lives of good works. Remember that, though. Remember that he's fighting against this evil, undisciplined Cretan culture. He's fighting against this false doctrine that seeks to seeks power through the law. It's a false teaching that confuses that root and fruit of salvation. They say the root of salvation is in the good works. It's in the things that you do. And Paul's not saying, no, don't do good works, but rather he's going to he's going to come against this idea that that's what you need to do to be saved. Do we need to do good works? Yes. But where's the power come from? That's where he's getting to. So the goal is effective members of God's family that are marked by good works. How's that going to happen? If Paul wants this church to be marked by good works, how is that going to happen? Let's talk about the plan and the power. Paul has, has a plan. This is his plan. How's it going to happen in the church? It begins with this overriding sort of core concern of Paul's that's in verse 5, right at the very beginning. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5. He says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order. Put what remains into order. He wants the, this culture, this, this church, to be marked by good works, but everything is out of order. Things are out of order in the church, and Titus knows it. Uh, but I think he just doesn't know where to start. We've all been there, right? You go to clean the house, and it's just like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> where do I start with this? I mean, everything is a mess. And we get so, it's that, uh, what do you call it, paralysis by analysis, right? Where do we start? Just start somewhere. Well, Paul has, has a very simple plan. And this is what he spells out, and this is what we'll be looking at in the, in the next three weeks. His plan is very simple. It starts in, in verse 5. I want you to set things in order. And the first thing you're going to do, Titus, is appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Appoint elders. Part one, get some solid leaders. Uh, he explains who they are. They're to be blameless, and they are to hold firm to the truth. They are to live lives of holiness, and they are to understand the truth of the gospel. He says, here's the plan. You want to set things in order? Start with your leaders. Start with a core group of people who are going to lead this church. Appoint some elders, Titus. The next thing that he says is to instruct the members. Appoint elders. This is the plan. Appoint elders. Then you guys need to instruct the members. That begins in chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes through. Older men in verse 2. Older women in verse 3. The younger women are mentioned there as well. Then in verse 6, the younger men. And then later on in verse 9, the bondservants. And he picks out all these different groups within the church. And he says, here's what it's going to look like for them as Cretans to live godly lives. Instruct the members how they are to live. And then finally, they are to engage with the world. I think that begins in verse 15 of chapter 2. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Here's the plan, Titus. Start at the core. Figure out your leaders. Your leaders. Get some solid leaders that are blameless and that know the truth. And then you go out to that membership. And as they interact with each other, I want you to help them understand how they are to live. Everyone has a place. The, the, the older men, the older women, the young men, the young women, the bond servants, everyone has a place in the church. and Everyone has a way that they need, they need to live that reflects the gospel. And then that, that's going to go out into the world and how you engage with others in the world. Here's the plan, Titus. Elders, members, world. This is how you're going to set things in order, okay? Isn't that effective? Doesn't that make sense? I think it's so simple. Sometimes we come up with, with other plans. But, but if we would have core leaders, if we would have those that, that are blameless and love the truth, that are instructing the members and then helping us engage with the world, that's so simple and it would work in any culture. But how? How are you going to have the power to do that? Is, is, is Paul just like the circumcision party saying, here's what you need to do? He's just telling them to do something different? You need to work by your own strength to accomplish this? No, that's where we come to the end, which is the power. Where, where will we, the power for this kind of change come from? And it comes from sound doctrine. Namely, it comes from the gospel. It, sound doctrine is a theme. Chapter 1, verse 9, 
it's talking about the elders and says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. The sound doctrine is what's going to lead to holy lives. Chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's, that's the fountainhead for all the instruction to the older women, older men, the older women, the young men, the young women. It's, it's, it's teach what accords with sound doctrine. Start with the sound doctrine. And it, there's, there's a contrast to the, to the sound doctrine in these false teachers. The false teachers are, are, are teaching what is wrong, and it says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why? Because they don't have sound doctrine, so they can't do what is right. There's a confidence that Paul has in the doctrine and in the gospel. It, you, it, right at the very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, again, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is, this is it. That before, this is something that happened long ago and has come at the proper time is manifested, and this is what is going to bear fruit. He gives all the instructions of chapter 2, but did you notice the shift that happens in verse 11? He gives all this instruction. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Not just salvation, but it also, verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What does that? The good news. The grace of God. The gospel of Jesus is what not only saves us, but helps us to live godly lives. It happens again in chapter 3, verse 4 talks about how we used to live as foolish and disobedient people. And then in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Where are the good works flowing from? It's not. He says we're not saved because of good works. He's very clear about that. But he's also clear that if we are saved by the grace of God, good works are the fruit that flows from it. Where does the power come from to do what Paul is asking Titus to do? Where does the power come from for us to do the good works that God has called us to do? It comes from understanding sound doctrine. It comes from the gospel. What did we say the main idea of Titus is? The gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst people into godly members of Christ's church. I think that's what Paul wants Titus to know. Listen, the gospel can do it, Titus. Look at the Cretans. The gospel can change them. It can make them godly members of your church. Look at these, these false teachers that are so hard to talk to, that don't want to listen to anything that you say. The gospel can change them. It can make them members of your church. The gospel is powerful enough. So what would be the, the response to that? 
I think that what Paul wants Titus to do is I, I have three three things that, that we can respond. I think the main thing that Paul wants to do Paul wants Titus to do and wants us to do is to trust the gospel to transform us and others. That we would trust that it can do it, that 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 it can change even Cretans. I think that Paul it seems that Paul may have thought that a Cretan could become an elder in less than a year. Because he says at the end there, um, in verse 12 of chapter 3, When I sent Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. So about a year maybe, he wants Titus to come. Well, Titus can't leave unless he's got some leaders in this church. And he seems to think, I think, Paul is saying, listen, the gospel is powerful enough to take these guys who are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, always lying, and transform them into guys that can lead your church, that can help you teach sound doctrine. And it can happen in a short period of time. Now, we hold that intention in with be careful about laying your hands on anyone too quickly. But at the same time, isn't that true for anyone who's in leadership? That apart from Christ, we're all evil beasts, lazy gluttons, always liars. That's who we are. But the gospel can transform anyone. We need to trust it, to trust that the gospel can not only transform evil, nasty, worldly cretins, but it can also transform religious people who think that they are good enough to get to God on their own. That the gospel can come in and humble someone enough to the point that they say, my only hope is in Christ, and transform them into not trying to do good works on their own, but to seeing good works as the fruit of the gospel. Paul trusts the gospel enough. He trusts also that the church is the place that transformation is going to happen. Did you notice that his plan is very church-centric? He's not, he's not coming up with, with some sort of parachurch organization. I'm not dogging on all parachurch organizations. But what he's saying is, here's the plan. Get some leaders in your church. Help them train the people in your church how to live godly lives. Engage with the world around you. It's the church. The church is so simple. But the church is able to, to approach both the Cretans and the circumcision party. It's able to approach those that are worldly and those that are religious and transform all of us into people that would worship God, godly members of Christ's church. The gospel is powerful enough to transform the worst of people into godly members of Christ's church. Our response should be to trust the gospel. I think it should also ignite in us a desire to be transformed. Don't we all want to grow in godliness and holiness? If we are God's children, that burns in our hearts. I want to grow. I want to know more of who Christ is. And I think we often maybe go the way of the Cretans and just say, this is who I've always been and who I always will, always will be. Nothing can change me. Well, the gospel can. Or we go the other way and we say, well, I'm just going to try really hard and I'm going to be really religious and I'm going to keep the law in my own power. No, that's not, that's not the goal either. The goal is to trust that God, by faith, is the one that will change us. And it should ignite in us a desire to be transformed by the good news and by the sound doctrine that God would teach us. I think the other thing is to give thanks. is to realize that we've got a little bit of both the Cretan and the circumcision party in our own hearts. We've got a little bit, we've got the rebellious side of us. We've got the religious side of us that wants to do it on our own. And thanks be to God, he has saved us, that the gospel was powerful enough, not just to transform the worst of people, but to transform me 
because I am the worst of people, because I am a rebel against God, and God can change me, not by being good, but by grace through faith in Christ. I think Titus is a very practical book for the church, not just for leaders. I think it does help a pastor. It's an encouraging letter to a pastor, but I think it also helps us to see how the church is to work and engage with the world around us. And my hope is that we can continue to see that. So we'll be in chapter one next week and then two and three of the following weeks. But I would encourage you, read the book of Titus. Read it at least once. Um, if you've got uh, certain apps, I think it's the U version. it'll read it to you. It'll take less than 15 minutes. It's a short little book. Read it, and as you read it, think about this, this, this connection between sound doctrine, between the gospel and good works, and how, how those things are connected. I encourage you this week, and we'll continue to study this little book and be changed uh, by the gospel.